0: To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org.
1: Welcome back for the semester. This is uh, the kicking off our, our weekly workshop in philosophy, politics, and economics with a book panel uh, celebrating Paul Alagica's uh, uh, book on public entrepreneurship, citizenship, and self-governance. Uh, just came out with Cambridge University Press um, uh, at, very, at the end of the, the fall semester here. One of the things I want to point out, it's good to be back uh, at school and everything like that. And if you've noticed, it's been raining and dreary all day. But on the moment that we start our seminar, the sun comes out. Uh, so onwards and upwards and all those kind of things that uh, uh, represent here. We have three distinguished guests today uh, to uh, uh, engage in the conversation. Uh, with uh, Paul and I'll uh, introduce you uh, starting with Jen. Uh, Jen um is a professor at the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, Jen is an expert in foreign policy and in particular the transition economies and post-communism. Uh, then we have uh, Jerry Gauss. Uh, Jerry Gauss is a professor of philosophy and political theory at uh, the University of Arizona. Um, Jerry is uh, one of the leading figures in the field of philosophy, politics, and economics. Notice what the program stands for. So we're thrilled to have uh, Jerry here with us today. Um, he is, uh, you know, the author, I think most recently of the, uh, the um, was it the tyranny of, the tyranny of the ideal, right? But many of you might know him for his book on the order of public reason. Um, and then we have uh, Jim Johnson. Uh, Jim is uh, a professor at the University of Rochester. He's been uh, one of the leading uh, uh, sort of uh, advocates and developers of a kind of uh, I don't know if he'll agree with this, but a kind of a, a sane, rational choice approach to political science uh, coming out of his days, even back when he was at University of Chicago. And he wrote a, uh, a fantastic book on the, the priority of democracy. Um, and so, uh, and then finally, the author. Uh, and I am thrilled uh, that Paul is going to get a chance to have a conversation about this book. Uh, Paul has been a colleague here with us Um, for well over a decade. Um, He is uh, one of the main uh, components of all of our activity that we engage in here, um, both as a scholar and as a mentor with graduate students that he's worked with over the years. And this book is a culmination of a a lot of thinking hard about the nature of the democratic project uh, from an Ostrom point of view. And so Paul, uh, please come on up and everyone please welcome Paul.
2: Thank you, Pete. Thank everybody. Uh, let me just try to set the stage for the So I'm going to say just a couple of things. And my starting point will be always to point out to the Mercatus and the George Mason program, because this book is part of a larger project. It's a larger enterprise, a collective enterprise. And it's one of the facets of this collective enterprise that we are uh, advancing at the interface of three traditions, three schools of thought, Obviously, Virginia public choice, Virginia political economy, Bloomington public choice, Bloomington institutionalism, and obviously, the Austrian market process theory. So I'm trying to advance, move to a new stage, the research line of these three convergent traditions. So this is the first, I think, and the most important thing that should be known about this uh, project. The second is that this project is, in a sense, an attempt to respond to what I think that is the most important, the most damning, if you want, to challenge against this enterprise of ours. And we know that sometimes we are challenged on methodological grounds, sometimes we are challenged on theoretical grounds. Sometimes we're a challenge on normative grounds, sometimes we're challenged even on ideological, political grounds. But I think that the most damning challenge, the most dangerous of all, is the challenge of irrelevance. And that challenge of irrelevance comes on two fronts, on two shapes. So the first is on public choice grounds. It's the public choice angle. And the line goes like this, and it was expressed at the highest level in the public choice community by one of the presidents of the Public Choice Society, Steve Brams, about 10 years ago. The idea being that in public choice, he was drawing attention to this situation in which attempts to improve, to outline an applied dimension of the public choice program are mostly missing in that paradigm. Attempts to transfer the research findings into governance and public policy insights or solutions are, if not secondary, at least not so important for the public choice tradition. So instead of just criticizing, public choice should also develop a constructive side. Without that, irrespective how sophisticated public choice is, it is irrelevant for a pride level, Purposes, which are the most important in the end. So this is a very serious challenge to the public-choice tradition, and especially at George Mason University, we have to take that seriously. The second challenge is pretty similar, convergent to this one, and it's focusing on the larger intellectual tradition within which the public-choice revolution has emerged, which is the, let's say, classical liberal perspective. And again, the challenge sounds like this. Yes, philosophically speaking, theoretically speaking, there is a very interesting literature emerging in classical liberal libertarian circles. But not much of it is relevant for applied purposes. Classical liberals were not part of the development of public administration as a field. We're staying out of the development of administrative state and then when he got back into the game in the 90s in the 80s they were doing basically just criticism of existing structures so is there an applied level governance classical liberal perspective or not and the answers of the critics uh, were basically negative so there is no such a thing so this is the kind of challenges that this book and the entire research line, the entire research program this book is a part of, it's trying to respond to. And the response, and I'm going to take me like five, six minutes to, to to give you the outline of the lines of response and where the place of this book is within this larger strategy, had several steps. The first step the first the first step is obviously to go back to the intellectual tradition, which is shaped by the Austrian public choice, and the institutionalist, Bloomington institutionalist perspective, and mobilize the theoretical apparatus, the insights on the nature of incentives and information, which are generated at the interface of these three schools. But within this space, the most important thing is a vision about governance. And that vision of governance was best captured, I think, by James Buchanan in a code that I'm going to use at this point under the label, the priority of the voluntary. Technically speaking, you may call it the primacy of the normative individualist perspective. But in the end, the bottom line is this. So Buchanan suggests us, people working in this tradition, to focus on institutions and relationships between individuals as they engage in voluntary organized activity. Trade or exchange, broadly defined, And people once engaged in these activities may decide to do things collectively, or they may not decide to do things collectively. The analysis, says Buchanan, is neutral regarding the proper private-public mix. Right? The idea is that the voluntary engagement of people is what matters. And the challenge for us in this tradition is to see how a theory of governance going beyond the theory of of political theory, political philosophy, how a theory of governance, which is built up around this vision and around this principle, is looking alike. And the next step is this book, which is forthcoming, joint project between myself, Pete Biotke, and Vlad Tarko, in which we are trying to articulate precisely this political economy foundation of a governance theory, which is taking seriously the priority of the voluntary. And most of you are familiar with the general shape and form of this theoretical construct. It's a doctrine which might be called of a classical liberal origin, doesn't matter. The structure and what is going on in such a structure matters. And this is what we are trying to articulate in this book. While engaging in in, in exploring and putting together from bits and pieces, this public governance theory, obviously, in the process, it emerged that crucial for the entire enterprise was the Ostrom's work. On the one hand, they provide the link between foundational theory and applied theory. On the other, they provide the link between public choice and the old traditional field of public administration which it, with its applied dimensions. So the Ostroms were the pioneers trying to push public choice as a foundation a public choice and the entire tradition coming with public choice as a foundation for public administration and take public administration to public choice and tell them, look, this is your applied field. So obviously, this is the next challenge. After you have articulated, articulated the political economy from the foundations to build up on that, and more specifically, to respond this challenge, which the Ostroms put it straightforwardly. So, the, there are two questions there. Uh, would the citizen expect to get the best results having public goods and services provided by a singly integrated bureaucratic structure subject to control and direction of a single chief executive? Or the citizen would expect to get better results by having access to a number of different collectivities capable of providing public services in in response to diversity. Now, if the answer to the first question is no, then the mainstream approach has problems. If the answer to the second question is yes, then we have a challenge. We are confronted with the task of developing an alternative theory of public administration that is appropriate for citizens living in a democratic society. So this is what this book is trying to do is trying to articulate, to build up, and to respond to this specific challenge as set up by the Ostroms. And in doing that, is is trying to uh, create a bridge between foundational theory, political philosophy, political theory, and the applied level, public policy, public administration, via a doctrine or a theory of governance for the last three or four minutes let me say something about the nature of the project and then let me say also something how this project might be perceived or approached from outside our community and our conversation within the George Mason Mercado's school uh, uh, triangle. So in terms of what is happening in the book, basically once you start to put together the pieces irrespective of the theoretical apparatus that you like to to, to use, the various... uh, Uh, theoretical vocabulary that you you, you want to engage in this task, you realize that sooner or later you have to uh, further develop the concept of public entrepreneurship and, on the other hand, the concept of citizenship as a facet to the concept of public entrepreneurship. So this is what the book does first stages. And then when those two things get together, you could see how is emerging a specific vision of governance or more specifically, of self-governance. So this is the first task of the book. The second task of the book is the following. Once we have created this beast, this self-governance theory, in the public choice, let's say classical liberal seeing like a citizen tradition, then the question is, what is more specifically the ideological nature of this beast? Because we like it or not, people Ask the ideological question. And we know that this is a legitimate question. People want to know more specifically where should one place such constructs, governance doctrines in the familiar spectrum of political doctrine. So the last part of the book is doing precisely that. So now you have a better sense of the nature of the enterprise, the context of the enterprise, a little bit of the challenges and the structure of the enterprise. And obviously, as I have mentioned at the beginning, The entire enterprise is anchored, is based on our attempt here at the Hayek program at Mercatus at George Mason to build up the cutting-edge research line emerging at the interface of those three schools of thought. Virginia public choice, Bloomington public choice, and the Austrian tradition. However, if we are stepping outside of our our, uh, conversation and our perspective, we could approach the same perspective, theory, construct, on the following line. On the foundational side, right? Foundations, political philosophy, political theory. Then you could look at the alternative ways of trying to solve specifically the same kind of challenges at the level of institutional design, feasibility theory, and governance structures. And then you look at the applied side. And if you're doing that, then you'll be discovering sooner or later that actually there, are, there is the work of three persons. That helps you best to get a sense of what is going on here, or at least puts you in the position to engage in a very constructive criticism of this. So, on the foundational side, Jerry's work, two lines: a theory of freedom and morality in diverse and bounded world, the order of public reason, and his challenge of ideal theorizing, his work on non-ideal theory. So this is one window through which you could approach this type of enterprise. And obviously, if you want to approach in a critical way this enterprise, probably this is one of the best ways, as far as I know, to engage critically, to criticize this thing, to identify what are the limits when it comes to the foundational angle. If you are moving, at the various ways of engaging the same sphere of challenges in the area of governance theory, institutional design, feasibility issues. Jim's work, I think, is the most preeminent. Maybe alternative, maybe complementary, maybe converging. We don't know. It's a conversation It's a fascinating thing here, because in so many methodological, theoretical uh, uh, aspects of our work, we converge. But also, in some normative, we're diverging in a lot of normative stuff. So it's a case study in itself what is going on here. So again, if at this level you want to engage and criticize and and, and set up the limits of this kind of work, (coughs) I think that James' work is is the best approach, best vehicle, best window. And then comes the applied level perspective. And James' work, I think, that is by far the most interesting approach that is trying to use theoretical lenses that are inspired in a sense by the public choice, by this type of tradition, by the seeing like a citizen, by the polycentricity stuff. But she's doing something even more fascinating and and interesting. And in order to to explain that I have to make apprentices to draw your attention to the way we are in our work here at George Mason using the case study and the Ostromian tradition. We are going for hard cases, extreme cases, disaster, recovery, Situations in which you don't just take a look at entrepreneurship in normal circumstances. You take a look at entrepreneurship in disaster and recovery situations. So the extreme case in the Ostromian tradition <coughs> is the kind of case study vehicle or test ground of some of those ideas. So this is Jan study. As you could see, she, she, has, she has done fantastic work in Central Asia, in Afghanistan, and trying to understand how governance theories, governance structures and institutions are faring in such extreme circumstances. So, I'm very fortunate here, I mean, I I think that this is something absolutely unique, I don't think that will happen again in my life, to have in this room uh, the best people possible engaged with the type of project that I'm presenting. here. I have my colleagues at at George Mason, and then I have the best people outside uh, which are somehow engaged with this type of project, but also I know that they have some reservation about it. And I'm looking forward for the conversation it's an ongoing conversation. It started a long time ago. It is just one moment in that conversation. will continue. And uh, uh, without uh, further ado, let me not stand into the way of uh, this ongoing conversation. So thank you so much.
3: Okay, thank you very much. It's a real honor and a pleasure to be here today, um, really among such distinguished colleagues, um, very humbling. And uh, congratulations, Paul, on such a remarkable book and i don't know if you read my notes before you gave that talk because uh you anticipated much of what i'm going to say right now (laughs) i don't know how he did it but he did i would argue that your book really presents a foundational statement that truly establishes the study of self-governance as central to the social sciences and democratic theory the ultimate goal of the book is to revisit the theme of self-governance and advance the approach from Ostromian perspective, to contribute to the theory of self-governance along the lines defined and inspired by the Ostrom's work, almost from an emic perspective on the terms that they define themselves. More importantly, I would argue that the book draws and expands on this vision of governance as anchored in a well-defined view of citizenship and civic behavior. And understanding these two components is very important because they're the foundations for this broader theory of government governance that you outline. The Ostromian approach to governance puts citizens at the center while trying to extend the analysis of entrepreneurship in non-market and collective action settings. I was so enamored by many of the ideas developed in the manuscript that I'd like to push them a little farther than those laid out in the book. It's not because I think the arguments in the book are wrong, it's because i'm convinced they are so right so if you allow me i'm going to take things to the extreme just as you said i would and perhaps i'll take them a little farther than you thought than you might be willing to go so i'll be interested to hear your response the points that the austrums are engaged in are a delicate balance of developing theories of self-governance and public entrepreneurship that are both a product of structural and institutional dimensions on the one hand and individual agency on the other. And it's at this intersection where I'd like to share some comments about the book and the broader enterprise to which this book makes such a foundational and I think will make an enduring contribution. What I'm going to suggest here today is that this approach to public entrepreneurship may be too confining. What do I mean by this? i mean by that by situating itself between individual agency and institutional structure the approach may limit the domain of self-governance and how we conceptualize of it especially if we consider the role individuals play in the process i contend that by defining self-governance in the context of the institutional environment of the state we may be selling self-governance short does situating self-governance between these two approaches limit the scope of this work I would argue that it does, and let me tell you how. We know that the most well known work by the Ostroms, and of course, the most well known articulation of this tradition comes from governing the commons. And if I were to ask all of you to, uh, today to identify one work that we most associate with this tradition, it would be this book. Now, we'll talk about Vincent in a second. It's governing the commons that situates the role of the public entrepreneur, incentives, and rules to articulate a coherent approach to self-governance. Towards the end of the book, Ostrom articulates seven design principles that are illustrated by long-enduring common pool resource systems. So to quote from scripture, (laughs) design principle number seven says, there must be minimal recognition of rights to organize. Further, she says, that the rights of appropriators to devise their own institutions are not challenged by governmental authorities. This point has always left me confused, especially when it comes to the role of the state in the self-governance enterprise. On the one hand, she tells us, there must be a minimal right to organize allowed by the state. This is a positive right, something the state must provide. Yet in the next sentence, she says something completely different. That self-governance systems must not be challenged by external government authorities. This is a negative right, a case where the state must tie its own hands. And these are not the same things. Recognition implies a blessing. I would argue that Ostrom's view is perhaps more inclined to the positive right side of the equation and that's because of the empirical cases t- tackled in that book. And I know we're not here to debate the pros and cons of governing the commons but it's such a foundational work that articulates the most essential features of the Ostromian approach to self-govern and it's one that you really engage with in the book I think what's most remarkable about this book, and what must be so astonishing for economists that she won the Nobel Prize in economics, is that it's based largely on inductive reasoning. In the book, Paul points out that the Ostroms were never happy with the epistemological and methodological trends generated in social science by positivism. As he writes, Vincent Ostrom described the method they employed as brute empiricism. Eleanor built her case for the contours of self-governance based on a series of diverse cases. We all agree that self-governance is endogenous to the institutional environment from which it emerges. The cases in the book are very well known to us. Japan, Switzerland, Nepal, and the United States. But these are all contexts that are characterized by fairly well-functioning states. Certainly Nepal is a bit different, but it's pretty typical of most developing countries. In your book, Paul, you point out that the monocentric social control view had a huge impact on the way problems of governance and public administration were defined in the 20th century, and this continues to have a big impact today. I would argue that this view of social control even shadows our approach and understanding of self-governance. The self-governance approach is deeply wed to the state, and as design principle number seven tells us, it's deeply embedded inside of it. So of course, The work of the Ostroms and many of their contemporaries who have applied these models to other contexts show us quite a lot about how self-governance works, but how do these ideas really apply to extreme contexts? What are the implications of this theory for self-governance in the extreme? What happens if we relax these constraints? Contexts where the formal government is characterized by extreme polycentricity on one hand and extreme monocentricity on the other. So I'm going to ask you now to consider the profane world of the empirical universe we live in. As someone who looks at self-governance in these most extreme cases, I'm not convinced that the state necessarily needs to loom so large in theories of self-governance. In approaches to self-governance, the state shapes the nature of self-governance systems. I think this theory would be more emboldened without it. For the past couple of decades, I've been working in these extreme environments, as you point out, in Afghanistan, where there's not much of a state to speak of, and in neighboring Uzbekistan, where the state looms large. We all know Afghanistan is a largely stateless society, and until recently, neighboring Uzbekistan sat in the bottom of global rankings of democracy and freedom, keeping good company with North Korea and Syria. In these diverse institutional environments, self-governance is actually ubiquitous. Of course, we anticipate this in places like Afghanistan, but what about these authoritarian environments? In Uzbekistan, I've found robust forms of social organization that persist, despite the imposition of extreme forms of monocentrism. Why does it matter? What are the implications for this book and how we think about self-governance in the state? If we look at these extreme cases and take them as our point of departure, rather than these more anodyne cases of Nepal and the United States, What are the implications of the theory of self-governance that Paul so beautifully lays out? I'd contend that the theory of self-governance can stand far more on its own and may not need to situate itself so squarely under the state's shadow. In these most extreme cases, we can see how self-governance operates. So this is where I'd like to take us once again to empirical cases to understand how we're deriving our scope conditions for the future study of self-governance. And this is where Ostrom's dislike for positivism may have, in fact, limited the scope of self-governance. When we consider self-governance, we are so quick to invoke James Scott's important work on anarchy. Paul's book speaks about the importance of seeing like a citizen, not seeing like a state. But much of Scott's work is also focused on how people govern themselves when they are evading the state. He shows us how self-governance operates under the conditions of the most extreme forms of formal government monocentrism that allegedly does not allow for polycentrism, which in turn enables self-governance. Paul asks us to take Scott's perspective to see like citizens and contrast this with seeing like the state. What happens if we take this a step further and strip ourselves of the concept of citizenship, which I think implies recognition by the state? Where does that leave us? I would argue that it even strengthens the argument that Paul lays out in his book and positions self-governance more solidly as a field of inquiry on its own. So let's go back to the original question. Is formal polycentrism a necessary condition for self-governance? I would argue that it's not, and that we may not need polycentrism as a condition to produce self-governance because it's actually ubiquitous. If polycentrism is everywhere, then it's really not a scope condition. What happens in extreme monocentrism? In extreme monocentrism, you often find robust forms of social organizations and self-governance. It's just really hard for us to see. It's hard for us to identify unless we go out there and we talk to people. Even in the least competitive environments, there are public entrepreneurs who are able to operate and do their work. They're able to work with individuals and create community to provide collective goods and serve those most in need but they are also sometimes able to provide the most important public good that's often neglected by the studies of self-governance, and that's resistance and revolt. So this takes us once again to James Scott, who also wrote about domination and the arts of resistance. Through careful anthropological work, he was able to chronicle how people provided public goods and even organized collective resistance to states under the least competitive, the least polycentric environment. This work is often forgotten by many of us who study self-governance. Resistance and revolts are public goods. When I was doing field work in Afghanistan, I learned an important term from Shia friends who faced horrible persecution under the Taliban. I learned about Taqiyah, which translates literally as fear or caution. Conceptually, this means dissimulation. According to Shia religious doctrine, Individuals have the right to hide or obfuscate their identity. They have the right to lie. They have the right to disguise themselves from others in order to avoid persecution. They are able to do this in order to prevent loss of property and loss of life under the face of oppression. This concept has been used and even legitimized as a basis to maintain unity of community members and preserve self-governance. In Afghanistan, Shia hid their beliefs and actually disguised themselves as Sunnis in order to protect, to protect themselves from others as they sought to evade the horrors of the Taliban. What I contend here is that, the self-governance, that self-governance in even the world's least competitive environments, to my mind, means that polycentrism may not be a necessary condition for self-governance. We may not need polycentrism as a condition to produce self-governance because it's ubiquitous. In other words, is public entrepreneurship so contingent on the polycentric and competitive nature of the institutional environment? Or is it our ability to see it and study it and identify it as a function of the competitive nature of the institutional environment that matters? So what are the implications of the theory of self-governance that Paul so beautifully lays out in his book? I would argue that the implications make it even more enduring and broad. What happens? What do we all gain if we eliminate polycentrism as a scope condition for self-governance? What happens if we no longer speak of seeing like citizens, but seeing like individuals? Seeing as members of a community? Does citizenship require recognition by the state? Do we need design principle number seven at all? So is polycentrism the cause or consequence of self-governance? If we look at the extremes, the real extremes, we see that in states, in largely stateless environments, we see extraordinary self-governance. Similarly, if we look at formal government systems that are characterized by extraordinary monocentrism, we also observe self-governance and extraordinary public entrepreneurship. So, public, so self-governance is then ubiquitous but may not be shaped by the state as much as we would like to believe. In other words, polycentrism may be a consequence and not a cause of self-governance.
4: So, we live in an, ideological, an age of ideological disarray, not only in politics, but in social and political theory. Political philosophy from the 1970s through the 2000s was an overwhelmingly left-of-center project. Most political philosophers understood it to be their task to construct ideals of redistributive, egalitarian liberalism, to guide enlightened democratic state toward the promised land of a fully just society, indeed, a fully just world order, where basic moral disputes have been overcome. This would be a homogeneous, well-ordered society. We all agree on egalitarian justice. And we all know that we agree on it. But in the last decade, the intelligentsia's conviction that their constructions express Fox Populi have been pretty well shattered. Something between a third and a half of the citizens of Western democracies appear to reject the democratic egalitarian project. And within the academy, some have gained notoriety, which I think may have been their real aim, in loudly rejecting democracy itself, turning against the democratic order just at the moment it was most under strain. We now confront a dizzying array of non-democratic anti-democratic proposals. We see renewed arguments for elitism, nationalism, and a research of Marxism and even Maoism. In response to all this, the liberal egalitarian repeats her mantra, radicalizing it in the retelling, seeking to make peace with Marx and becoming every more skeptical of capitalism. She's become just another ideologist, adding her voice to the din. Unlike most of his disciples, Rawls came to recognize the fundamental challenge presented by moral disagreement and so sought to rethink the nature of political theorizing in light of it. If reasonable people disagree about justice itself, Rawls reasoned, the nature of the just state is importantly indeterminate. Whatever might be the ultimate truth of the matter, it's not one to which all reasonable citizens will converge. As far as political reasoning goes, there's a number of reasonable ways of ordering social and political institutions. Each is convinced that his political views represent the truth, but to your neighbor, they're errors. To insist that the political order conforms to your convictions about the truth fails to treat others as reasonable goodwill co-citizens. To be sure, Rawls progressed only a few steps along this path. Whatever the scope of reasonable indeterminacy, to him it remained firmly within the family of liberal egalitarian theories. Yet even these small steps towards accommodating moral diversity were enough to alienate most of his disciples. They either insisted that Rawls made an error in trying to banish appeal to the moral truth from his political philosophy, or they simply denied that Rawls ever started along this path. What truly flummoxes contemporary political philosophy is how to seriously and productively theorize about reasonably, deeply diverse moral societies. Given that this is the defining feature of our time, It's hard to underestimate how devastating a failure this is. Paul's wonderful and important book is one of the most comprehensive efforts to articulate a democratic theory premised on deep and abiding diversity, not just about interests, but about values and about moral beliefs. Diversity, Paul argues, is simultaneously a challenge to democratic self-governance and a resource for it. In this respect, the book is one of the most thorough articulations of what I have elsewhere called the New Diversity Theory, which aims to identify institutions that not only cope with deep diversity, but which can harness it to improve on the problem solving abilities of the citizens. Paul's book is magnificently rich. Its unique analysis of diverse social order weaves together literatures about self organization, self governance, collective problem solving, classical liberalism, and of course public entrepreneurship. These elements form a conceptual circle. Enduring it, any one leads you to the rest. In these comments, my entry point is democratic citizenship. One way of reading Paul's book is that it seeks to reconcile Vincent Ostrom's advocacy of tovillian-inspired democratic citizenship with pervasive moral and value diversity. As Paul says at one point, when it comes to the contemporary debate, the argument of this book could be read first and foremost as a contribution to the defense of a certain form of liberal democracy. So how can a society of deep and wide valuational agreement maintain a firm commitment to democratic citizenship, respect, and toleration? Let me briefly consider, of course, Rawls's answer, for there's no other question that so vexed him. As Rawls recognized, the centrifugal tendencies of moral and religious disagreement drive us apart, leading us to advocate conflicting social and political institutions. This, as Rawls notes, was the hard lesson of the wars of religion. If people are free to draw on their controversial comprehensive perspectives, Rawls worried they might not converge on liberal democratic institutions. Rawls's response to this problem was powerful and dynamic, consisting of three claims. First, citizens must bifurcate their value structures into public and private sets. The public set, Rawls argued, is defined by the shared values of late 20th century democratic culture. In democratic discourse, we must restrict ourselves to considerations based on values within the shared democratic culture. Secondly, these public values must be weighty enough to normally override the temptation to pursue moral conflict and moral discord, with groups trying to capture institutions for private ends or to shape the public in the image of one's controversial view of life. Thirdly, ultimately, Rawls hoped, over time in a successful democracy, a congruence between public institutions based on shared values and the diverse conflicting comprehensive doctrines may be secured finally reconciling democracy with deep diversity I said this proposal was powerful but not I didn't say ultimately successful it clearly appreciated the problem and advanced a set of proposals that would indeed serve to solve it alas all three claims are dubious citizens sometimes set aside their religious doctrines in public debates but not say Martin Luther King but typically they draw on their controversial moral commitments. But our moral commitments are not only diverse, but they're often divisive. Recent work by Peter Descoli has shown that morality is not just about securing cooperation, but it's also about choosing sides in conflicts. And whatever public values we do share are often overridden by our controversial moral commitments. Finally, the last decade has made quite manifest that many comprehensive moral and religious doctrines have not aligned themselves to the democratic open culture. Paul takes an entirely different tack. True to his Ostrom training and Austrian sympathies, he adopts a bottom-up approach in lieu of Rawlsian planning for democratic justice. As I see it, and I'm sure I've missed a good deal, the core of Paul's resolution of citizenship and diversity is located in a problem-solving conception of the political. One of the great lessons that we learned from the Ostroms was that the joint action is most apt to arise when a group of people face a common problem. We face degrading common pool resources and we seek to do something about it. In problem-solving contexts, people are willing to bracket their comprehensive disputes, not out of a strong democratic duty, but because they need to work together to solve problems. Unlike a state-centered view, We are not seeking to justify a freely roving authority that may within some bounds do pretty much as it wishes. If we are employing the roving state, I certainly am apt to bring my deepest and most controversial values to bear on what it should do. If I see it as a generalized institution for value promoting, then of course, I will try to use it to promote what I think are the correct values. I am, after all, committed to them. But if crime is rising in my neighborhood, my focus is on solving that problem. To a significant extent, the bracketing of controversial commitments that Rawls thought essential to democratic citizenship endogenously arises because of the nature of the practical problem. Once we grasp the centrality of the political as problem-solving from the bottom up, other features of Paul's account of democratic citizenship come to the fore. First, the importance of public entrepreneurship to democratic citizenship becomes manifest. Three critical tasks of the public Entrepreneur are immediately apparent. First, the public entrepreneur must help identify potential collective action problem solving contexts. That we confront a collective problem doesn't mean that we appreciate it. Second, the public entrepreneur must take a leading role in mobilizing recognition of the problem and ways to solve it, which would include providing the context for discussion and exchange of information. And thirdly, a task of the entrepreneur is to take the lead in organizing contributions to secure the joint good. Paul's discussion in Chapter 2 of the way in which the entrepreneur can build on different preferences for public goods is especially nice, again helping to show how diversity of preference can cause a convergence, not simply a divergence of outcomes. Of course, it doesn't follow that a single person, the entrepreneur, must perform all these tasks. At one point, Christina Bicchiari was tempted to build in her theory of norm change the category of norm entrepreneur, but I suspect she abandoned this because it suggested that a person somehow specialized in norm change, and so she didn't want the idea of someone who does all who changes all norms, but rather some she replaced this with the idea of people who are trendsetters in particular normative contexts. Although most Bicchiari's norm trendsetters and Paul's public entrepreneurs are seeking to solve social dilemmas, they are importantly different types of agents. Bicchiari's trendsetters are highly autonomous individuals. Facing inefficient or downright bad social norms, they are most apt to first defy social expectations. Paul's public entrepreneurs, in contrast, have a variety of motivations, including ideological ones. In many ways, his concept of entrepreneur is more functionalist, defining a role in the system, whereas Biciari se- seeks a predictively powerful concept, helping to identify those individuals who are apt to become agents of norm change. It's because citizenship develops in a problem-solving context that Paul conceives of democratic civic competence, largely in terms of the development of problem-solving capabilities. Paul's notes that the system of institutionalized countervailing powers, which Vincent Ostrom advocated as being essential to a constitutional order, can only work with the development of a culture of inquiry in which conflict can be addressed in a problem-solving mode of inquiry rather than a way that provokes fight sets where threats and counter threats easily escalate into violent confrontations. The divisiveness that a diversity can engender is thwarted in problem-solving context into a more cooperative inquiry for better solutions. And this point brings us back to the relation of citizenship to diversity. As noted in the quote from Vincent Ostrom, in problem-solving context, diversity can work to the benefit of all. Once politics is conceived in terms of inquiry or discovery, we can draw on results such as Scott Pages, Lee Landamores, which show how diverse groups can possess enhanced problem-solving capabilities. It's important that Pages' diversity theorems are about problem-solving context. When we've identified a common problem and we agree on what good solutions there are, or could be, then Hong page dynamics get going. Because democratic citizenship is about collective problem solving, and because the public entrepreneur has identified the shared problem and what the world will count as a solution, the stage is then set for diversity to insist to assist in social searches for better solutions. Notice how nicely this set of claims responds to the problem of democratic citizenship under diversity. Because the site of democratic citizenship is bottom-up problem-solving, each is incentivized to put aside her diverse comprehensive doctrines to focus on the matter at hand. Public entrepreneurs seek to identify such contexts and mobilize citizens to solve them. And as they do so, citizens' democratic competencies are enhanced. And lastly, in such contexts, their diverse perspectives on the problems at hand lead to better collective solutions. Together, this is a really wonderful set of reinforcing claims, showing the possibility of democratic capabilities in a diverse society. The linchpin of this elegant solution to the problem of democratic citizenship under diversity is politics as problem-solving. As far as I can see, the solution is contingent on the ability of public entrepreneurs to create shared problem-solving contexts. Without denying the persuasiveness of the solution in many contexts, like Rawls's solution, it depends on limiting diversity at some point. And I don't mean this as a criticism. All solutions ultimately must limit diversity somewhere. One feature of perspectival diversity is that individuals or categorize situations and problems in different ways. Lord Devlin thought homosexuality was a public bad. Many in this country think American dominance over other countries is a public good. About half the English EU membership is a collective problem. Some think the nuclear family is a public bad, engendering sexism and injustice. Some think economic growth is a collective good. Some think it's a collective bad. The list goes on and on. In these circumstances, not only do we not agree on the problem to be solved, but the public entrepreneurs, or perhaps those who Paul would call ideological entrepreneurs, work to divide us to get us to see a problem or else to deny there is a problem. What constitutes a collective bad or a public good is, of course, not a given in the nature of the world. As I think Paul would be the first to accept, recognition of something as a problem arises from within the perspectives of those living under a set of institutions. (laughs) If so, diversity once again threatens us with divisiveness. Rather than a million Popperian politics as inquiry, we again confront the reality of politics as choosing sides and enduring conflict. Another element of Paul's concepts, circle of concepts, polycentricity, can help us a lot here. As my good friend Fred D'Agostino once pointed out, a critical method to cope with disagreement is separation. Those who th- see things differently can live under different institutional structures, recognizing different collective problems. I I certainly don't in any way wish to belittle the importance of polycentricity. Indeed, I think properly understood, I'm a great fan of it, but many understandings of it, such as Nozick's idea of utopias as internally homogenized communities, each going their own way, are poor understandings of it. I think polycentricity as separation into distinct communities is bound to fail, and this for two reasons. First, the requisite degree of homogeneity can never be attained or sustained, as Rawls rightly pointed out. Disagreement is the inevitable result of the exercise of human reason under free institutions. No matter how small the group, new perspectives arise, and if they didn't, the group would stagnate. And secondly, as the Austins pointed out, when group cleavages are mutually reinforcing, intergroup conflict arises. The other group becomes them, who are different from us. At best. This sort of segmented polycentrism purchased intra- group agreement by exasperating intergroup inter- conflict. So to conclude, why I think politics is problem solving and discovery plays an important role in the ideal of democratic citizenship in a diverse society, I'm in some ways still in the Rawlsian camp. Reconciliation through public justification, finding a social framework that all can endorse as at least minimally acceptable which then forms the basis of mutual accountability, is prior to politics as problem solving. Once we have the framework in place, then we can begin to work on commonly perceived problems. Paul's work has provided an important part of an ideal of democratic citizenship in a diverse society. Other parts, I think, still remain to be developed. Thank you.
5: So the book, for most of you are students, I think. This is a model of what you should aspire to. Um, and I say that um, in two senses. One, in the sense of it's simply, um, it, it's simply clear and insightful and provocative. It's that way about his own vision and his own argument, but it's also incredibly fair-minded and charitable to the views of others, including myself, including Jerry. Um, and, and, that's, and that's really important. Um, you want to pick people to argue with, or to disagree with whose work you take seriously. Um, And uh, that's not always the case, as you'll find out uh, as you go along. Um, So I think it really is a model of intellectual engagement. And it's a model of intellectual engagement across philosophical and political economic terrains. uh, in, in in just a kind of, as I said, a remarkable way. In substantive terms, just to give you a set of the ideas where Paul and I can have converged, not necessarily to a unique point, uh, but we're very much in the same ballpark, um, there are 10, and I'm just going to list them. Um, and each one of these uh, deserves essays sort of uh, on, on their own, um, independently of what... Uh, what he's done in the book. The first thing is what Jerry's talked about, this idea about problem solving and the focus of, of both academics and experts and of real people in the world, which we're not really um, on that on that um, on 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 that kind of approach to thing uh, to, to things. The second is a sort of willingness to trespass across positive and normative questions, not to smuggle the normative in Um, in illicit ways but to say here's my positive analysis here are a whole set of normative issues that are really crucially uh, important that come out of that uh, kind of analysis and here's my normative positions, and here's a whole set of analytical uh, questions that I need to be able to answer or I need to be able to uh, approach uh, in, a, in a rigorous way. The third is um, this sort of skepticism that he shares with Jerry and uh, with myself um, regarding ideal theory generally, but especially as the Ostroms would put it uh, in terms of not, not wanting blueprints or panaceas. Right? There's no one way of doing things um, that is, is, is ideal. Uh, the fourth is questions about how we use models, what we use models for, how we learn from them. Um, the fifth is the primacy that he really gives to local knowledge, uh, to local experience of people on the ground. Um, the sixth is a skepticism about centralized authority. Yes, I wrote a book on the priority of democracy. One of the good things about democracy is that, as they say, you can throw the bleeps out. Um, and and not just skepticism about centralized authority, but cent- centralized authority, regardless of whether it's authoritarian uh, in some sense or whether it's technocratic. It comes in various stripes, and that's really important. Um, then there's this sort of this, I think, crucial idea, this recognition of active agency, that citizenship involves that kind of constitutively uh, in some way and the things that he says about that. Um, The eighth thing is the acknowledgement of open-endedness of the world, right? It is not our oyster. It is not set up, um, as Peirce reminds us, to accommodate us. It sets us our problems, and we have to then... Uh, figure out how to deal with those problems. Um, then there's a sc- sort of s- s- skepticism about state provision of goods, services, uh, organizational structures, whatever it happens to be, um, versus this idea of active self-governance. I just think it's a. It's it's not just the Ostroms who are saying this. It's. Paul's way of extending and elaborating on what they're saying. So that idea, I think, is just central. And the, and the last thing is this idea about experimentation, that we have, there is no panacea, there is no blueprint. There are a range of ways of conducting our collective and our individual lives, and we ought to uh, foster and um, encourage that kind of experimentation uh, rather than imposing solutions on people. So we agree, I could just sit down, uh, but you didn't, you didn't invite me here uh, so that we could hold hands and sing Kumbaya. Uh, so we're not going to, and I have three or four uh, issues um, that I want to raise. The first one is, is something like what Jen says, um, uh, coming at it from Um, the perspective of a political theorist who loves data-free speculation as opposed to actually knowing things about uh, the world, um, has to do with um, this idea about what's the scope of public entrepreneurship. And in some sense, I agree with her because Paul's first example of that comes from Lynn. And Lynn says, look, the public entrepreneurs, they have these resources. They can tax, they can use eminent domain. And well, that makes me think that we're talking about officials. And when I think about public entrepreneurs, I want to know about the people who are dissenting. I want to know about the people who are taking the space of public entrepreneurship rather than letting it be given to them or granted to them in some way. And so I read this and I think, Boy, who's a public entrepreneur for me? Ella Baker, right? The woman who was central to organizing outfits like the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee during the Civil Rights Movement. She was centrally concerned with finding local leaders, with organizing local communities, with relying on local knowledge. And she didn't wait for permission to undertake that task. Um, the, the second thing is, is, is thinking about the way that um, out of the civil rights movement you get a whole set of interesting institutional forms and you get institutional forms that are a response to problems that civil rights workers had confronting the state what did they do they said well if we, if we confront the state if we go down and try and register to vote what happens we get thrown out of our houses We lose our our means of of subsistence. We we lose our jobs. And so they come up with these ideas about land trusts and cooperatives and ways of doing for themselves, creating institutions that stand independently of the state and that support their justified opposition to state policies. Um, If you read, for example, Gene Sharp on nonviolent um, protests. One of the running themes is that there is a set of independent institutions not reliant on the state. And that, this, I mean, you, you you get his little manuals and you think, gee, he, sh- he should have known Lynn Ostrom. That's what she's talking about here, right? She's talking about how do we set up institutions that allow us to do for ourselves and not, as Jen says, rely on a grant of privilege or a grant of rights, right? Um, we, we, we need to, in many instances, take or define the rights uh, that are being withheld. Um, so that's the first thing. So I would say ditch the idea about this has to be officials. Sure it can be officials. The more interesting leaders and entrepreneurs are the ones that are creating more or less out of whole cloth. And um, and that's I, I think really important. The second point is about citizenship. There are a couple of passages of Lin's that that leap out at me, and as 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 Jen said, you read. Governing the Commons, and it's all about these weird places, right? Exotic places. Political theorists, we don't want to talk about Nepal, right? I mean, come on, it's dangerous there. There are big mountains. I'm going to fall. I'm going to hurt myself. It's just not, you know, it's just not well advised. Um, and so, and so, when I read her book, the things that popped out at me, right, is at the very beginning. What does she say? I don't care about the logics and the dilemmas and the predicaments um, um, and the tragedies. Those are models, gets to the question of what we're going to do with our models. What I would rather do, she says, I would rather address the question of how to enhance the capabilities of those involved to change the constraining rules of the game to lead to outcomes other than remorseless tragedy. That gets skipped over because we go to the case studies and the principles. But the principles are about that. They're about citizenship. They're about how do we set people free to do for themselves. And how do we stay out of their way, in some sense, while they do that. Um, And that's really important. And then in her APSA uh, presidential address, she says this thing, uh, which is just Terrific, I think. Uh, What the research on social dilemmas demonstrates is a world of possibility rather than a world of necessity. If you read Olson and Garrett Hardin and Arrow and people like that, you get a lot of, this cannot happen. And Lynn is just a breath of fresh air because she says, what do you mean? It already has. Or it can, and here are the conditions under which it can. And so when she writes about Sen, she writes about Sen in an essay on possibility and exploring possibilities. And it's a terrific essay because she says we're doing the same thing uh, in, some, in some way. And this gets to the idea about citizenship, and it's not a mistake uh, that I mention Sen because Paul gives uh, Susan, uh, my wife and I, are, are testing the bounds of domestic harmony by writing together. Um, and um, uh, we've written a paper that Paul was at the same workshop, um, kind of trying to bring Amartya Sen's work on capabilities together with that first sentence from Ostrom um, in, in Governing the Commons about capabilities of individuals because Sen, of course, has this theory about capabilities. And interestingly enough, his views about capabilities mirror part of what Paul says about entrepreneurship, which is entrepreneurship is not a a set of psychological features, it's about the interaction between certain kinds of cognitive and motivational capacities and sets of institutional arrangements, opportunity structures, as it were, Um, and that's how Sen thinks about capabilities, and here is one of the places where I think Paul and I I don't know that we diverge, but we don't know what to say to one another. Um, And that's when we think about Sen's ideas about capabilities. Martha Nussbaum comes along and says, I'm a philosopher, I can give you a list. Here they are, right? Well, Sen says no. The way that we decide on what are important capabilities in a context or a community, and how we would weight those has got to happen in what Jerry calls the realm of public reason. And he quite explicitly says that this is a, in essence, a kind of democratic procedure where local people have to navigate and negotiate that. And there's a whole lot, Paul's got a little paragraph, and he says, boy, I'm glad I don't have to talk about that. This is a, you know, there's a, this is a project in and of itself Um, And I think that that's right. But part of what I want to know is what do we have to have as citizens to do that? What are the qualities that we would have to have to think in, to to see like a citizen uh, in that kind of context? And, you know, things that come to mind you have to have commitment, you have to have principles, you have to have uh, imagination to be able to entertain possibilities. You have to be self-reflective, and Paul gives us a long list of the dire psychic shortcomings that we have, and being self-reflective enough to see that I'm in the thrall of those things is important. Um, and you have to have this ability to think abstractly and to approach problems in interesting ways. Um, and that's um, that's a, something that's not spelled out in the book that I would like, that I kept, wanting to see spelled out um and so that's not so much of a criticism so much as there's another book (laughs) there you go um um, the third thing is um comes out of what's happening in my hometown in rochester which is uh, the use of cooperatives or the proposal to use cooperatives producer cooperatives as an economic development tool in poor neighborhoods to find market niches and give people ownership stakes in the firms that they they run. And Paul has a kind of passing comment that says, oh, when we think about that kind of democracy, workplace democracy, where owners are making decisions collectively in some sense, that scrambles all the categories. And I think that that's right. And so this gets back to the questions um, from the first point about land trusts and cooperatives and so on uh, that came out of, the, out of the civil rights movement. And economists tell us, there's a really nice book um, by I think Greg Dow, his last name is Dow, called Governing the Firm, which is about this process and that, that the problem with cooperatives is not that they don't work once started, but that they're hard to get going. And you think, well, what is going on about cooperatives? on page 24 of Governing the Commons Lynn Ostrom says, and an exemplar of the sort of things that I think are important for self-governance are cooperatives. So how do we use those kinds of idiosyncratic or what seem like idiosyncratic institutional arrangements to get again allow people to do for themselves and sometimes that's coming up from the grassroots it's happening that way in in um, Jackson Mississippi uh, um, of all places Um, and sometimes it's kind of a top-down process which is what's happening in Rochester and I'm less enamored I'm not enamored of either of those uh, models as they're working out but they 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 kind of Anchor the poles of the distribution, and how do we want to think about that process? What kind of institutional arrangements can we come up with as we think about and draw the implications of the Ostrom's pluralism? Um, the reason I ask that is that we get to the point where Paul and I, um, and maybe me and almost everyone else in the room, parts company. Uh, I should only say this close to the door, which is, um, is, is, is the commitment to classical liberalism, which he's trying to tie the Ostroms to quite directly, and I see as a much more contingent kind of connection. So my own background is much more coming out of American pragmatism, which has liberal dimensions to it, but is not, let's just say, Dewey is not in your pantheon of classical liberals think that's fair to say, <laughs> nothing personal uh-huh. and, that, and, and 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 the and the point there is that it's it's great to butt heads about this right to think about what is it that my intellectual heroes have in common with intellectual heroes that are here um, and that's that's something that paul's book um, really has has led me to To think about a lot not just this book his his other work is as well and here's the bottom line um, the the last thing and then I'm gonna stop Um, is that if as Paul says and this is on page 183 he says even Hayek says there are going to be domains in which the state is going to be important right he's not he spent a bunch of time arguing against anarchist kind of um, libertarians So there's going to be a domain for state provision of services and so on and so forth, and most importantly for state promotion of experimentation. That's what the mayor is doing in Rochester. She's saying, look, we've got a problem, and our problem in Rochester is 33% poverty rate at the federal level, so we can argue about whether you want to take that measure or not, but there's lots of poor people. And there's no way of getting them out through redistribution, even if we wanted to. So how can you do it um, in a way that actually provides them uh, with income and wealth as a way of getting out of, the, out of their predicament? Um, but if we're talking about states and we're talking about markets, and I haven't mentioned that, but even as one of the things that Paul and I agree on is markets are really cool. Right? We don't need to say that, but we have markets, we have states. The Ostroms were about what's not market or state, right? all of these decentralized institutions. And we have a whole range of self-governing institutions in between those sort of behemoths, as it were. Um, how do we decide? Right? How do we decide as a collectivity if we need to, di- to distribute or to produce goods and services and experiments and institutions how to do that we've got a plurality of possibilities there I think the way that's why the book is entitled the priority of democracy that we have to rely on democratic mechanisms and we can argue about how you, you know, embody those in institutions. And part of my worry about polycentricity is that it leaves that question open. And it leaves open the question of what happens when you have jurisdictional units that conflict and conflict in ways that aren't negotiable in some sense, right? that you have abiding conflicts. And I'm not sure what the answer is. I mean, I have my answer to it. I'm persuaded by my answer. Nearly no one, including Paul, who's very generous about it, is persuaded by that answer. But there you go. This is a lovely book. Read it. Emulate it. Take it seriously.
1: Uh, 18 minutes or so. Paul, do you have any comments you'd like to respond?
2: Yes. Sir. So just a quick reaction to that. Um, <coughs> I think that it became obvious uh, that basically this is an ongoing conversation that what you have seen here is part of a conversation that started a long time ago in various ways and will continue and uh, on the one hand indeed there are things in which uh, we are converging the views of the panel and uh, the, the, the views of the various research traditions that we are representing at this uh, table at this conversation are converging and I think that this is a very interesting uh, uh, thing especially for those that are concerned about the overlapping consensus and uh, the challenges of creating and, uh, and maintaining such consensus. But I think that the divergence is extremely interesting. Focusing on where these perspectives are diverging, focusing where those uh, perspectives are, are, are diverging, uh, helps us to get a better sense of the nature of the challenge and the nature of, uh, of, 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 of this uh, project. That helps us go beyond a sort of superficial reading and also superficial criticism of, uh, of it and i think that in the context of this conversation one of the most um, interesting for me things was that uh, all three commentators converged in a criticism of polycentricity and given the nature of the enterprise which is pivoting on the very concept of polycentricity it seems very interesting that all of them from different perspectives however converged in them questioning the very idea of polycentricity. Polycentricity of, an, let's say, governance structure and also as an idea, as a sort of ideal for governance uh, structure. And I think that there is a lot there in this type of challenge um, uh, uh, that we should be, or I should be focusing on. Given the circumstances, it's impossible to answer in this current uh, context, uh, the three types of challenges that were raised in the direction of polycentricity. But I think that given the nature of polycentricity in the Ostromian uh, system, and as it emerges in the classical liberal system that we are trying to articulate, that's a very serious thing that has to be um, um, addressed. Um, the second thing I think uh, that these comments, and especially the divergent points, divergence uh, points illuminated is the fragility of this enterprise Uh, and I think that it gives a reason why it is not so powerful or salient in the last 100 years or so because it contains this uh, intrinsic fragility which was pointed out by all three commentators on the one hand there is this tendency to go in the radical direction and uh, and uh, Jim and Jan pointed out a couple of ways of going into the radical uh, 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 direction, including the fascinating insight about our vision of polycentricity, which is still tainted too much by a certain vision of the modern state, the Westphalian institution, that is occupying so much of our vision, even of polycentricity, that is, is, is in somehow tainting our understanding of those governance structures. But then. There is a sort of reaction, Jerry's reaction. You you are going too far in the direction of of, of (laughs) diversity, and I think, and I I think that, and and, and pointing out, and rightly so, to a sort of uh, public reason, uh, more or less uh, uh, Rawlsian understanding of the overarching system of rules that Vincent Ostrom makes as a sort of key definition, in addition to the overlapping and competing centers, and I think that that is not as superficial on the country. It's a very deep and sophisticated door towards better understanding the fragility of this type of a project because there is no equilibrium point in the structure of this type of enterprise other than something else maybe brought from a different, uh, from a different sphere, uh, 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 a sphere of, let's say, governance theory or political theory or culture if you want to. Uh, so that is, in a nutshell, my, my reaction. I know that I, I can't make justice to the, 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 the profound and, and very, um, I think, important points, especially in criticism that have been made in this conversation. But again, we keep in mind that this is an ongoing conversation. And basically, we we'll are partners in that. And, uh, and uh, hopefully, we'll be able to get a better sense of these issues as we move along in this uh, uh, conversation.